Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Mike McKinney. I'm one of the pastors here. I um, just want to welcome you guys. Uh, this is Church at Bergen. Uh, just as a reminder, we're not here to get anyone's money. Uh, we're not here to make you conform to uh, a bunch of rules or something. We're here to worship Jesus Christ. Um, if you are new here, uh, we, 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 we come with that primary goal in mind, to treasure Christ, to love him, to worship him with all of our hearts. And we do that by singing songs, not mechanically, but with full, passionate hearts as we love him deeply. We also do that by preaching through the word of God. We've actually been in the book of Ecclesiastes. We just kicked it off a couple weeks ago. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right in the middle uh, you've got Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes as well. Uh, but we also, by um, way of worship, we worship Jesus by uh, being generous and giving. So if you have been coming here for a while, we, you know that uh, in the back there's a few gray boxes on the wall where we give. Um, I'm just going to pray, because uh, today, I have to be honest, is, is a bit of a heavy topic. Um, so I need God's help. Um, so let's, let's pray for just a moment. Father, I'm so grateful for this, your son, Jesus Christ, and that he so gladly, so beautifully paid our debt, gave his life for us, that we may have joy, uh, that death does not win, that joy wins. What an unbelievably magnificent hope we have in your son, Jesus. We thank you for for that gift. You did not spare your son, but you lavishly gave him up for us sinners. We thank you for that grace. Help me now, Lord Jesus, to um, declare you, to preach you clearly with a passionate, full heart. Um, Lord, if I say anything wrong, that you would guard these people from error, uh, but that you would also make our hearts ready to, to hear uh, what you would have to say. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the book of Ecclesiastes, just kind of a, a way of review, was written by Solomon. He was a king. He was a son of King David. King David was the one who defeated Goliath with a little stone. Um, it was written, he was kind of around 900s BC. Uh, he was not a perfect man, uh, but he was, uh, some believe, to be one of the wisest, richest, most powerful men in the known world at this time. He was king of Israel. Uh, he was not a perfect man, so he made lots of mistakes. And at the end of his life, he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, forcing us to consider life apart from God and to see how meaningless it actually is without him uh, in hopes that we would cast our eyes upon the coming Christ someday. Uh, Pastor Mike was uh, teaching us last week in chapter 2, we'll be in chapter 2, uh, on the vanity of self-indulgence that if you pursue a life of self-indulgence, of pleasure-seeking, without pursuing your ultimate satisfaction in Jesus Christ, it is a very sad and lonely and meaningless life. Uh, and so Solomon's going to turn the corner, and it's going to go back to wisdom. But of course, we know that he's going to end on the vanity note. Um, but we're going to be in verses 12 through 26. And here's the main point that we're going to see today. Okay, I'm just going to read it so I don't mess it up. The only hope for lasting joy is for the almighty joy of God to be given to you in the midst of your work 
and toil. And we're going to look at the main points. We're looking at 12 to 26, but the main point is actually found in verses 24 to 26. Okay, And Solomon is actually going to argue his way to this point. Everything's leading up to verses 24 and 26. So I'm going to do this a little bit differently, but I think it'll, it'll be helpful. We're going to go to verses 24 and 26 first, see his main point, and then go back to the beginning and see how he got there. Okay, so if you would read verses 24 and 26 with me. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after win. So the, the first thing he says in verse 24 is that the best thing for us in the midst of our daily activities like eating food and drinking, not like getting drunk or something, but just daily activities and working 60-hour weeks, the best thing for us is to find joy, discover joy, a lasting joy through those things in God. And the reason I know, we know this is not just some superficial, like, I feel good about myself, is if you look in verse 24, the word enjoyment, your Bibles may have a little footnote on the word enjoyment, if it does. If you go down to the bottom, it gives the actual translation of the word enjoyment, which it says, to make his soul see good. So the best thing for us is in the midst of our daily activities, through those things, for our souls to see good. And this good is not like a moral good. It's not like a good versus evil. It's like a good that you treasure. And it's not, if you notice, it's not something that your hands grab onto, but your soul grabs onto. And you and I do not have the capacity to make ourselves do this. God himself must give us this gift. And we know that because in verse 24, it says, at the second, the last verse in 24, the last uh, sentence, this also I saw is from the hand of God. And then in verse 25, for apart from him, that's God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. And then verse 26, for to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. God is the one who must give this gift to us. Now, and we know that uh, I told you guys that we're not, he didn't just arrive at this point from nowhere. He actually argued to this point. If you look at verse 12, it has the first word, so, right? He's making a conclusion. And if you look at verse 17, first word in verse 17, he also uses the word, so, making a conclusion. And then in verse 20, he uses the word so. And then I think there's an implicit so in verse 24. He is getting to this point. So <laughs> we're going to go back to the beginning and see how Solomon got to this point. Verse 12. 12 through 14a, you might say. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So I told you guys that last week Pastor Mike talked to us, talked to us about the meaningless, meaninglessness of pursuing a life of self-indulgence. It didn't work. So now he's going to go back to wisdom, and the reason why is because in verse, I believe it's 12, just check here. Yes. He says the reason why. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Here's the, what, what's he saying. If the most powerful, richest, wisest man was unable to find a meaningless life in self-indulgence, what makes you think that you would be able to? It's like if there was a massive boulder in the middle of the road and the strongest man in the world comes at the boulder and is unable to lift it, we automatically, by common sense, conclude no one else can do that. So if Solomon, who's the most resourceful man on the planet, cannot find a meaningless life in self-indulgence, neither can we. So he's going to go back to wisdom. And it does make sense because he says in verse 13, then I saw there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. In other words, it makes perfect sense to just simply live a practical, productive life. That in the face of everything, the best thing for you would just to live a practical, productive life. Do something worthwhile with your life. It's better to be frugal with your money rather than foolish with your money. It's better to be a person who is punctual and on time and is prepared as opposed to someone who's always late and is always inconsiderate. It's, it's, it's much better to come up with a business plan as opposed to wing it. And that's his point. Now, he makes this obvious point because he says it's as obvious as there's more gain in light than in darkness. A wise person has eyes in his head but the fool walks in darkness. Like, when you're driving through the middle of nowhere and it's dark, no one asks themselves, should I turn the headlights on? When you're crossing a busy highway, no one asks themselves, should I keep my eyes open as I cross the street? Um, I thought this would be appropriate, a little bit of comic relief. True story, my... We have, my wife and I have two daughters. Reese, is, she's turning four in October. Likes to do this thing where she likes to run through the house with her eyes closed. One day, she's, I, watched, I saw the whole thing. She's running through her house, and she's got her eyes closed, and I'm seeing the whole, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to run into the wall. And I don't say anything for some reason. I'm, just, I'm a bad father. She crashes her face into the corner of the wall and just like Niagara Falls, tear, crying. And my wife and I are like, it's it, like she's, bawling her eyes out, but it, it's hard for us to not, like, laugh as she's crying because it's, <laughs> and we're like, Reese, it's a little bit wiser to run through the house with your eyes open <laughs> when you're closed. <laughs> I think you get the point. Um, this is Solomon's point. It's, it makes so much more sense to go through life wisely as opposed to foolishly. Now, that's, he hasn't even started his argument yet. Verse 14b and on, I'm just, I just want to plead with you guys today. He's going to make a very dark turning point here. He's going to talk about a topic that we don't like to discuss. 
The natural inclination of the human heart is when things are really weighty and really serious and really uncomfortable is to back away or for someone to crack a joke or whatever. And I'm pleading with you to let this have its effect today. Let it have its effect. Because I I promise you, at the end of this dark tunnel, there is a sweet light in Christ. And if you resist the pressure of the weight of this topic, you're resisting your own joy at the end. So resist all temptation to to not take this seriously, to not consider it, to not let it have its full impact upon your heart today. So verse 14. Second sentence in verse 14. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. The wise and the fool, that is. Verse 15. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So he talks about this event that happens to the wise person and the foolish person. And it like stabs him in the heart, right? Says in verse 14, I think. I said in my heart, it went through the superficial stuff and broke through. So what is this event? It's in verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will but have been forgotten. Look at this last sentence. How the wise dies just like the fool. That's it. It's death. No matter how wise you are, no matter how productive you are, no matter how practical you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how many Whole30 diets you go on, in the end, the foolish person and the wise person, death consumes. I call this the ruthless impartiality of death. It does not care who you are. So what if you have accomplished and built this great kingdom for yourself? Death does not care. It is ruthlessly impartial. It comes for all. I don't know why I thought of this in my sermon prep, but um, you know the song by Jiminy Christmas, When You Wish Upon a Star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. If Solomon heard that song, he would buy the rights and change the lyrics to when you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires, death will take it from you. Remember what I said, let this have its effect on you. And just as bad is the fact that you and all your accomplishments will eventually be forgotten. Right? Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Like, I mean, when I was in college, I played football at Wheaton, and I was, you know, I, th- I thought it was like 
the man or whatever. I graduate, I leave, and it's like they even it's like they forgot that I even existed. Like life moves on. It it moves on. You will be forgotten. And you may be really, really great someday, and your name might be remembered for maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years more than the average Joe, but eventually your name runs out of steam, and it's forgotten. Paul the Apostle testifies to this in 1 Timothy 6, 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So that's the rock bottom. That's, that's the foundational part of Solomon's argument. And he's going to go to the next step. He's going, to make, he's going to make an implication or conclusion from that. Verses 17 through 19. So, right, because of this ruthless impartiality of death, verse 17, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The fact of death reached into his heart and incited rage and anger toward this fact. I mean, it's like, what hap- if, you, if, you, if it takes you years to build a house, and then someone, right as you're done, right as you're about to move in, someone comes in and takes it away from you, it's going to incite some furious rage. Or if you're a student and you, spend, you stay up until 4 or 5 a.m. doing a project, and you go into the classroom, and the teacher just simply, as soon as you walk in, the teacher takes it away and gives it to someone else, that's going to incite rage. That's Solomon's point. All, all that I've done, all this, this massive kingdom, and it was massive. It was glorious. Solomon's temple was a thing to remember. But he died. And his son Rehoboam takes over. And let me, we could put it this way. This is an understatement. Rehoboam, his son, was a fool. He split the kingdom apart. The, eventually, the kingdom eventually just went to a rapid downward spiral. And the Babylonians came in 586 B.C. and destroyed Jerusalem. That's his point. When you die, you ultimately have no control over what you have worked so hard to build up. Whoever takes over after you, he says in verse 19, yet he, the person after me, will be master over all for which I toiled. It's... Like, when you're gone, you, you have no say anymore. You have no, there's no guarantee that the person after who takes over will use it wisely. Now, you can get angry all you want at an unbreakable wall, but eventually you realize this wall is never going to be broken. You can get angry at the impartiality of death. It's utter indifference to who you are, what you've done for so long, but eventually it gives way to despair, which is exactly Solomon's next point in the argument. Verses 20 and 23, look. 
Look at verse 20. So, because of this, because no matter how angry I get at the fact that after I die, I leave it all behind, there's no guarantee that the person after me will use it well, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also I saw is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation? Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. This section sounds very similar because it talks about you know, leaving your stuff behind. But the major difference is the idea of joy. Verse, four, verse uh, 21. He says, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else. That in the end, there's no lasting joy. Because most of your time is spent not enjoying what you work for, but in the actual work itself. And you may experience a little bit. There's no lasting joy. You leave it all behind and some fool or a wise person, doesn't matter because death's coming for them, will enjoy it and not you. And on top of this, I think this is why, ultimately why, his heart leads to despair. Your primary portion in life, the lion's share of your experience in life will be exhaustion, fatigue, frustration. That's what he says in verse 22 and 23, right? What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. And even get this, even in the night, his heart does not rest. So even after all your work, when you lay your head down at night on the pillow, you may get physical rest. But deep, I'm talking deep in your soul, you cannot say with integrity, I am a deeply happy man or woman. Underneath it all, there's unrest, fatigue, exhaustion, frustration. What am I doing? What is all of this? Which is why it gives them up to despair. What is despair? The most typical definition of despair that I found was the complete loss or absence of hope and joy. The, desp the despair is the logical conclusion one must make from the reality and impartiality and difference of death. It's the outlook on life that death wins. Death has the final say. It's the end of the road. That's it. And despair is an unbelievably scary and lonely and dark place to be. I mean, there's... there's when you've got to despair, you've, you've gotten to the edge of the cliff. There's, there's no other, what's worse than despair? You can't get angry because that was the previous part. 
The only reason you were angry is because you thought maybe your anger could break through through something, but when you realize that you can't break through, eventually you're like, oh my gosh, this is it's the end. Despair is, 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 is as bad as it gets. And friends, <laughs> this is where Solomon wants to take us. He's trying, he's, he's leading us here. So step one, verse 14 through 16, talks about the ruthlessness of death and all its fangs and claws and how it comes for everyone. And then from there, it incites rage, how you're going to have to leave everything behind and nothing to do in the end amounts for anything. And then ultimately that leads to despair, verses 20, 23. He's trying to get you here. Now, for those of you who are Christians, you're probably thinking, okay, I know that, but can I hear about Jesus? Yes, we'll get there, I promise you. I might call this part of my sermon intermission. Because typically when people think out the implications and they've reached the point of despair, there's typically two responses that humans make to this. And the first response I call the religious response. This person believes in God and they believe in the afterlife. But they have no guarantee that they're going to make it in the afterlife, so they use their fear of death to drive them to become a good, moral person in hopes that that might pay off for them in the end. So they conclude, as long as I'm a good person, whatever that means, and as long as I stay out of trouble, I won't go to hell, go to heaven. But there's no, there's no real guarantee, though. Here... Here's the problem with that. There's two problems with that. Number one, this creates a self-righteous monster. Because if you take this view, you've let fear of death drive your goodness, you're essentially building up a report card before God, and you say, look, I've got a B plus or an A minus upon my really obedience towards you. You should let me in. This creates a self-righteous monster. And if you know anything about the life of Jesus, those are the one people that he had most issues with. So if you choose this route, you're actually going to become more impure than you were in the first place. And you're worse off before God. Second problem with this view, you are banking your eternal destiny on a paper-thin, a paper-thin possibility that somehow maybe your righteousness or your goodness will somehow keep you out of hell. I think Jonathan Edwards, who's a famous preacher, theologian in the uh, 18th century, responds to this, says this so well. He says that sin makes your soul heavy like lead, and it drags you down. And he says, quote, all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. I don't know how else to say this. God's, God is infinitely holy. His holiness is a consuming fire. And to take your, our righteousness and present it before the infinite consuming fire 
is like throwing an old tissue paper into a forest fire and say, there's my righteousness. It's an unbelievably foolish response to despair of death. The second response is what I call the irreligious response. These people may or may not believe in God. They're not really too concerned about that. They don't really care. They're more concerned about the here and now, right? And they see the ruthlessness of death. They see it. And they also, they think out, and they say, yeah, it does, in fact, lead to despair. I see that. I, yep, I would agree with Solomon. The logical conclusion of the ruthlessness of death is despair. Now, they don't want that. But they can't, change, they, they can't get away from death. So they know that if they follow their beliefs, it's going to lead to despair. So they do something really clever. It's amazing. This is really amazing. They change their view of death. They give it a makeover. So they say things like this. Death is just a natural part of life. Or, death is merely going from existence to non-existence, from consciousness to non-consciousness. Or they say something like the Lion King, it's just the circle of life, right? And they might even do a little dance and sing a little bit of songs. Anyways, now, once they've done this, what happens is death is no longer scary. See that? And so now, they just view death as a friendly accountability partner that drives them to do some good and maybe enjoy life as time goes on. The best example that I found... Sure, we've all heard of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, in 2005, he, in 2011, I think, I think he died of cancer. In 2005, he gave a commencement address to Stanford University. And this is what he said. Quote, death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old make way for the new. Isn't that nice? You see what he just did? He just put makeup on death and made it sound fun. It made, not fun. He made it sound good, like something to be welcomed. Two problems with this. Number one, I wonder what his wife and kids think about that quote. Because here's what I know. I know, we all know, Death strips a wife of her husband. Death strips a father of a son. Death strips a brother from a brother. Death strips children away from us. This is foolishness. We all know. We all know. Death is not a friend, it is so unwelcome. It is such an enemy. And to stand before the world and to try to deceive the world into thinking it's a friend is unbelievably deceptive. Also, these people have to get rid of God's judgment because it's really not death that we fear. It's what might be beyond death that we fear. You with me there? It's not necessarily death we fear, it's what might possibly beyond death that we fear. 
So in order to not be scared of death, these people have to hide that possibility and just get rid of that possible belief. The problem is that that takes a ginormous leap of faith. To go through life hoping that somehow what's beyond death won't actually be there is a foolish way to live. So in summary, both the religious and the irreligious response to the fear of death is it can't work. So the religious person, it looks at death realistically, but it's always afraid. And the irreligious person is not afraid, but it's only because they're not looking at death realistically. They're looking at it unrealistically. It's kind of like if there's a train coming at a religious person. They can't get off the tracks. Their response is to get really anxious and to be a good person until the train comes, hoping that they wake up from it and they're okay. The irreligious person, the train is coming, and so they turn their back on it and pretend it's not there and just say, I know there's a train coming, just pretend that it's not coming and just enjoy your food. Or they face death and they put a giant emoji, smiley face on the train, and they say, see, it's not really scary, it's, it's smiling at us, it's actually our friend, we should welcome it. Both of these options are very foolish ways to go. So the question is, is there a way to look at death realistically, but at the same time live with indestructible, lasting joy in the face of death? Yes. And that's where we start in the first place, in verse 24 and 26. Solomon brought you to the edge of despair, not so that you would become more religious or deceive yourself in irreligion, but to come to the end of yourself and cast your eyes upon the sovereign grace and joy that God loves to grant those who call upon him. And so now this frees you. It frees you to not merely enjoy the fleeting joys of the things of this world, but to go through them to the infinite joy that your soul was made for. God must sovereignly, by his grace, open your soul so that you see through all the experience that you have in life upon this one you were made for. Paul the Apostle testifies to this in 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, quote, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be proud, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So this new outlook on life, they, they're able to enjoy everything in this world properly because they know that it ultimately comes from the one that they hope in, God. So now they're not enslaved to these things that they're enjoying because ultimately those things lead them to God. But if there is no hope in God, the only thing you have is what's here. Now, when Solomon wrote this, we simply had to take him at his word about a real joy that he was talking about, and it's true. But hundreds of years later, God would give us an even better argument. But it would not simply be another step in logic. He would actually step 
into this world as the man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ took the sins of the world into his body and on our behalf went before the massive, fierce fiend of death and he killed it. And he didn't just face death for us. He actually faced what was beyond death for us. He didn't just face death. He faced the judgment of God for us. So remember the irreligious person, what they tried to do was get rid of the judgment of God. But the Christian looks at God's judgment and says, I have no fear of anything. Because Christ, when he died, took my sin and sat in the judgment seat for me. And he died for me. And he didn't just die. He actually resurrected. And he rose again from the dead, conquering it, killing it, defeating it. So now everyone who looks to Christ and trusts upon him can stare death in the face. It's no longer this scary lion. It just becomes this little kitten. They, have no, they, they look at death realistically. Yes, it does strip me of everything. But you can look at death in the face and say, you don't win. Joy wins. Amen? Joy wins. Through Christ, death does not win. Joy wins. It liberates you from despair. When it seems like there's no hope, God gives hope through Christ. When it seems like there's no lasting joy, lasting joy comes in through Christ. And then there's this last verse in 26, and this is where we'll end. Verse 26. The reason why it's a lasting joy, it says in verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, that's God, how do you please God? Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. It's talking about people who, who trust in Christ. For to the one who trusts in God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. What does that mean? The reason why the Christian's joy is an everlasting joy is not because they're a better person, but because they know that in the end, God is going to give it all back to them. If you do not trust in Christ, the one who conquered death, the one who faced death for you in his sin, in your sin, excuse me, all you can do is gather and collect only to one day leave it all behind. And those who belong to God, God will renew everything that has been made and he will give it all back to those who are his. We'll end with a verse, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Without Christ, death is a slave master. But he comes in and he destroys Satan in his death 
So now the one who held us captive with the fear of death, he takes that away, and we have no fear of death because joy wins. Um, I found this really... Uh, David Paulison, who is a, one of the premier Christian counselors today, uh, he was talking about his conversion experience before he became a Christian. And he described himself this way. And he, he looked back on his conversion and he said that there, were, there was one thing that he could not, it was kind of his, one of his greatest sins that he had to repent of when coming to Christ. And here's what he says. I was guilty of believing that despair got the last say in life and death wins. But God opened my heart to realize that joy had the last say and not despair. I was absolutely flooded with joy. I realized I was home. I had been found and loved in Christ. That's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you do not leave us in despair. But when we're on the edge of the cliff, Christ comes. When it seems like as if there's no possible way out, Christ came. And all that made me an enemy of you, that made us an enemy of you, all that made us afraid of death, our sin, Christ took upon himself and he faced our death for us. We thank you for that good news, for that gift. Oh, Father, grant us hearts today to sing with deep joy and love for Christ because we know that through him, joy wins. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.